following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. We'll be in the book of Isaiah. This morning, as we have been over the last several weeks in our Advent series, looking through uh, the gospel, really, as it's presented in Isaiah, particularly if you recall, we've, we've saw what we would call these three characters or lead agents that emerge from the book of Isaiah that God raises up to advance and promote and establish his kingdom on earth. So the first week of Advent, we saw the Davidic king that God would raise and the promises that he made to his people there in Judah about one who would come in the line of David and establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Again, the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 is made again and fulfilled here in Isaiah and ultimately in Christ, we saw, who is the son of David. In the second week of Advent, we looked at the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42 through 55 and how God again raises up a servant because Israel, God's servant, failed in their task. And so this servant was faithful to God's calling and God's mission. And the means by which he was faithful was through his own suffering. Again, we see that this servant, this character, is Christ. And then last week we saw in chapter 61 the messenger of God, this prophet who God would again raise to speak to the nations and to his people particularly to announce the inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth, his rule and his reign. We saw over the last three weeks the picture of Jesus in Isaiah as prophet, priest, and king. And these figures that were, that were painted for us in this book ultimately are to point us to Jesus this Christmas. Well, this morning we don't see another figure. In fact, we look more closely at what this figure, both as prophet, priest, and king, as the Davidic king, as the messenger of God and the suffering servant, come to do and establish for us. That is, over the last three weeks we've been talking a lot about kingdom, but we haven't spent a lot of time on that idea properly. So this last Sunday of Advent, we're going to explore the idea of the place and people of the kingdom of God. This is ultimately what Jesus has come to do for us, not only to save us, redeem us from our sins, but in so doing, establishing his kingdom on earth through the redemption of his people. So when Isaiah mentions the kingdom of God and the agents that God raises to help establish and lead that kingdom... We know ultimately that he's talking about the church and Christ and how through the church and Christ, the kingdom of God is established and made known on earth. And I want to say from the beginning that major points of this morning's sermon were taken from uh, a book called the book of Isaiah and God's kingdom uh, by a scholar. His last name is Abernathy. If you're interested in learning more about that book, I'd be happy to share that or loan that to you or help provide the link there on Facebook. Just wanted to let you know that the, the large uh, portrait of our sermon this morning comes from points taken from, from his book. That being said, let's pray together and then we'll begin the study of God's word. 
But Father, we are grateful to again meet and study. And I confess, God, that uh, there is much inadequacy on my own part to preach and to explain the, the multifaceted, beautiful picture of, of your redemption and your purposes in Isaiah. There's, there's much I'll leave on the table, and there's much to continue to explore. And, and yet, Lord, we are gathered here so that we might glean some wisdom and some insight and some hope from your word. And I pray, God, that as we do that, our hearts would be calm and open to receive it. I pray that our minds would be free of distraction and attentive to your word. Our ears would be open to the leading and the guiding of your spirit. And then ultimately, God, we'd be filled with joy and gladness in the gospel of your son, Jesus. Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, I want us to know first that according to Isaiah, that the kingdom of God is not an immaterial spiritual reality that is displaced among the physical earth. It's not full of displaced people in a displaced context. When Isaiah speaks of the kingdom of God, he means a very real place in which very real people inhabit. God's kingdom is placed, if you will, with people in the midst of it. Just consider what we mean by place. Where is God's kingdom? Does it have a place? Well, this season, many of us have transformed our living spaces from what maybe looks generally like a festive fall occasion into what I hope is a festive Christmas occasion. You may have a Christmas tree in your living room, some stockings on a mantle, your wall somewhere, some ornaments and some decorations, and each spot, you hope, has a place. We have lots of things we've inherited from Brittany's side of the family in mind that we know exactly in our house where this decoration goes. Every year it doesn't change. It goes there because each thing has a place. And when we say that, we mean where it belongs, where it's put, and where we intend it to be. Well, there's place, this concept and idea, all throughout the Scriptures. And we first encounter this idea of place in Genesis, in the creation story. We'll just consider God creates man, and he places man in a garden, a place that was created for man to dwell and live. Before man, the world was inhabitable. It was void, and the Spirit hovered on the face of the waters, and God created the world so that he might place man in it, and so the earth is made. It's made habitable, and man is set in the garden in the center of this context. And so place, the garden here, both becomes the physical and the metaphorical context through which man is in relationship with God. God places him in the garden, and it's there in the garden, in that place, that Adam and Eve enjoy perfect fellowship with God, unhindered and unencumbered by sin or evil, until one day it wasn't. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, and they're expelled from the garden. They are removed from that place, and their perfect union with God is now destroyed. 
But even outside of the garden, if you recall the narrative in Genesis 4 and on, even outside of the garden, this idea of place still plays a prominent role in the storyline of the Bible. Recall that God promises Israel a land through Abraham. He leads them to it and he helps them prepare to dwell in it, to inhabit it ultimately as he takes Joshua and Israel over the Jordan into Canaan. Ultimately, we see that this place, this land is lost as they're led into exile. And then again, here even in Isaiah, further promises now of a recovery of place with, a God, with God and what we would call a new covenant, with a new Jerusalem, on a new heavens, a new earth. And so from altars to tabernacles to temples, God's dwelling place is always now tied to his people as well. And so we have this two-pronged picture of what God is doing in his kingdom. First, establishing a place where he dwells with his people and establishing a people with whom he will dwell. Both the place and the people of the kingdom of God is a major theme throughout the book of Isaiah. I just want to briefly point our attention to these two emphasis so that it would stir our own hearts for what God has accomplished and is accomplishing through the birth of Jesus as we celebrate the incarnation in his birth this year. First, consider with me the place of God's kingdom. There's two ways, first, we need to understand the realm of God's kingdom or the place of God's kingdom. First, universally, and second, particularly. That is, God's kingdom is universal over the cosmos and particular. That is, we see in Isaiah that it sets in one particular place among the many. So when we consider the place of God's kingdom, let us then remember that it is first universal. That is, God is, as Isaiah will tell us, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I should warn you, we'll be in several places in Isaiah, so it would do well if you flipped there quickly, or if you'd like, just write down the verses, study them later, and I'll read them for you. But God, we learn in Isaiah 40, is the maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah 40, verse 26 through 28, says this, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He speaks here of the stars. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. But why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What we see here is that God is the maker, the creator of heaven and earth. He has the power to create and sustain. He put the stars in the heaven. He hung them and he knows them all by name. Not one of them is missing. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, the highest mountain and the lowest valley, from the tallest to the depths of the sea. God created it all and is over all of it. Why is this important? Why does Isaiah want to remind Israel or Judah of God's power as creator? 
We're right there in the middle in verse 27. He says that Jacob, or that is Israel, is saying to themselves that they are hidden from the Lord, that God has disregarded them. Remember, as they come into now this this post-exilic land, destroyed by the captivity of the Assyrians, the Babylons, and even the neglect and disrepair of themselves over the years, they wonder if God's covenant will still stand. They wonder if God will still be faithful. Has God neglected or abandoned them? And so Isaiah speaking, points them back to the power of God's rule and says he has created the heavens and the earth. God's power here then is to help these weary exiles and these pilgrims to remember God's sovereign power as creator and that this power is ultimately to be leveraged for their good. That is, if God who created all of the universe will promise to do so again for his people, can we not have hope that he will be faithful to those promises? In fact, he has created once in Genesis, and so he will create again. Go to Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, the Lord says through Isaiah, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So God now is not only promising to restore, but to build new and better Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. That over which God now rules, he makes again. For the promises are to come. This newness, of course, is not just new in the sense of new material. It's new, the newness of the new heavens, the new earth, is the reversal of the former things we've read there that have passed away or will come into mind. No, the renewal or the reversal of these formal things is things like restoration and peace and longevity and prosperity, flourishing, childbirth, safety from enemies and threats, unity with the world, with one another, and with God. That's the newness of the new heavens and the new earth that he promised to create as he created once, and he will do it again. And so in the new heavens, in the new earth, God will be creating a reality where all is as it should be. All distress and turmoil will be no more. So God is creator and maker of heaven and earth. And so he rules over all that he has created, both now and what he will create again. This stirs up hope and confidence in Israel as they return to their land again, and even for us, the church, as we think about the the bleak future we may have in front of us, may the Lord tarry, that gives us hope to sustain ourselves in the fight of faith. But not only is God maker of heaven and earth, but we see through all this that God is king of heaven and earth. He rules over that which he creates. Again, a little further in Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? That is, God over heaven is ruler and king. He is the sovereign over all things. God has dominion, and his dominion extends to all, everywhere and at all times. That is, there is no place where God's 
dominion does not extend. There is no place wherein he is not king. There is no government over which he does not preside. There is no event he has not ordained, nor one atom over which he does not fully reign. God's dominion extends as the sovereign king to all places at all times. This, of course, we see perfectly fulfilled in the rule and reign of Christ, who God puts forward and God exalts, and who is raised up by God and now is seated at his right hand, whose, who all dominion and authority and honor are due to him, the name above every name. A Christian philosopher, Abraham Kuyper, would say this, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What this means for us, brothers and sisters, is that there is great hope we can have that God who made the world has not left it or abandoned it to do its own thing. That we may look around our lives and see a sort of state of disrepair and the, the havoc that sin has wreaked, not only in our world, but in our own lives, in our own relationships. And even if we look inward into our own heart, we see the devastation of sin. And we wonder, is God going to repair this? We see the promises of the Bible, but we know the reality of our heart, and we wonder sometimes, is God going to make these things right again? But he who has created the world has promised that he will recreate again. The heavens and the earth, which are now destroyed by sin, will be recreated, purified, made new, and the people of God will dwell in a new place with God as their king. He will be sovereign over all, not only in the new place, but even as he is now. But that's the tension we live in, isn't it? That though God now makes the earth his footstool, the earth is not yet subject to him, not all of it. So the promise we have in this now and not yet is God, ruler over all things, promises to make all things new and his rule and reign will be perfectly met, perfectly just, and perfectly obeyed in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we think about the place or the realm of God's kingdom, Isaiah tells us that it is in the heavens. It is cosmic. That there is no place where God's rule does not extend and no place where his dominion is not established. And yet we look forward to a day where because of what Christ has done, the kingdom is ushered in in its fullness and its consummation, where that rule and reign is felt and is seen and is obeyed. But not only is it cosmic, God's kingdom is also particular. That is, we learn that it is placed in a particular area among the others. Isaiah will call this place Zion, or Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling. Again, go to Isaiah 65 and read with me verses 17 through 18. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 18. Again, we've read, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So here we see the parallel between the creation of a new heaven and a new earth as God's rule and reign extends to all places at all times with 
the city of Jerusalem. He creates the new earth, and he creates a new Jerusalem, a particular city whose people is filled with joy and gladness. See, God parallels this new creation of the universe with the new creation of this particular place, Zion. Well, if we kept on reading in Isaiah 65, verse 19, notice what he says there. Isaiah 65, verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall he be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Notice what this city would be like. No weeping, no distress. Verses 21 through 22, that same chapter, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another habit. They shall not plant in another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Look at chapter, or verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So notice what happens here in this new Jerusalem, which is the place, the center of this new earth, this new created heavens and earth with this new created city in the middle of it is a picture of perfect peace. In a phrase, the curses of sin are lifted in the new heavens and the new earth. The life of God's people and of all the earth will be as it should be under God. So God not only creates, but now he restores. He makes new and he makes right in this new place of God's kingdom. See, what God does then for Jerusalem, we see, for Zion, is a sample of what he will do throughout the entire heaven and the earth. That is, Jerusalem is really a microcosm of the universal realm of God's kingdom. But, of course, Jerusalem or Zion here is more than just an example of what God will do. In fact, it will actually be the, the capital or the center of God's kingdom. The entire new world will orbit Zion as both the theological and the geographical center, which is oriented around God's kingship. A happy phrase I ran into while studying this, theotopological. Theological, topological, theotopological. Another way to place it is that geography is theology in this case. Where Zion or Jerusalem established as the center of God's kingdom points others to the ultimately the kingship of Jesus. In chapter 24, verse 23, the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. We see then Zion all throughout is a picture of God's glory and resting place among his people, and is the central place where the rest of the world, even in the new heavens and the new earth, come to worship God. This, of course, doesn't undermine what God has done in saving and making a nation of all nations for himself, but he has established a particular place, Zion, and the new heavens and the new earth to be the epicenter where all nations would come. 
How this works mechanically in the new heavens and the new earth, whether we float or all there at one time, I don't know the metaphysics of that. Again, I want to point you to our elder, Jake, who probably has some wisdom to share. But Zion, note that Zion is central in the book of Isaiah, always as God's city. First in its failure, and then in its judgment, then ultimately in its restoration and in its glory. So rather, the book of Isaiah is fundamentally concerned with the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the site of Yahweh's holy temple. And the temple of Yahweh symbolizes Yahweh's role as sovereign creator of the universe, including Israel and Judah and, of course, the nations at large. So what we need to understand is Zion's or Jerusalem's significance isn't just special simply because it's a place and it's in the middle, but because that is where God's presence dwells. He dwells in Zion on his holy mountain and where God is, so his people will be. So among the new heavens and the new earth, there is a new Jerusalem where God will be. And this is the center of God's kingdom. But not only is God's kingdom universal in particular, ultimately we need to understand that it's eschatological. That is, it's future-oriented to the fulfillment of God's purposes. You may have noticed already that there's much language here that Isaiah uses repeated in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, notice the language John uses here. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what's the kingdom of God look like in Isaiah? Ultimately, it looks like it's established all over the universe. Cosmically, it has no end. God rules as king over the world. But also we see God's kingdom focused in a particular place, Zion, his holy mountain, where he establishes his presence with his people. And there we need to understand this this bifocal picture of God's kingdom as actually pointing us to this new fulfillment, this new heavens, new earth, this coming kingdom that will be established in perfect peace and unity where we dwell with God and with one another in perfect harmony. That's the place of God's kingdom. But secondly, let us consider now the people of God's kingdom. That is, God's kingdom, of course, is a kingdom of people. We don't simply mean the kingdom of borders, per se, though we see that we, Jerusalem is a microcosm of that, but the nation and the kingdom of God's realm extends throughout. It is the people of God's kingdom that make it his. And as Isaiah envisions this kingdom, we're given this clear picture of really several distinct qualities or characteristics of what those who dwell in that kingdom are like. That is, in short, the citizens of this kingdom will be like their king and their creator. They will reflect the true heart of God, their maker. 
They will fully image forth God's likeness as they were created to do. Remember that the new heavens and new earth is establishing the perfect rule and reign of God on earth as it has been meant to be. And so when God made man as his image, the idea was that man would image forth perfectly what God was like, would be representative of God, and that man would be a signpost for the beauty and the worship of God. But because of sin, the image of God was marred in man. But in the establishment of God's new kingdom through his new people, that image is restored and is made whole again. And so God's kingdom people will fully image forth God's likeness just as they were created to do. Well, how does he do this? First, we know that they are purified and redeemed. See, before we can, do, we can get to what God's people must do to reflect the character of God, The reality of the kingdom of God rests in what God will do to create the kingdom community that he desires. And he'll do this primarily in two ways we see from Isaiah. First, he's going to create a holy people that is purify us and then redeem us as a fallen people. He creates us and makes us holy by purifying us and he redeems us from sin by salvation through judgment. Considering the purification that a God, per, God performs, consider just the beginning of the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 25. There he warns, I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy." This is a picture of purification. This is how pure metals were were purified and all of the extra dross and impurities were put away. They would be melted so that that which rose to the top could be left, could be swiped away, removed, and what was left was purified, pure metal. Well, God says that he will do that to his people. He will purify them. Again, in Isaiah chapter four, verses three through four, he who is left in Zion after judgment, and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Again, we see the picture of purification, of refining. So what's happening here is God is purifying, creating a holy people. Why? Because God is holy. And a holy God, who is a holy king over a holy kingdom, must have holy people. Consider Isaiah's picture of God as he has the vision there in chapter 6. What is sung about God? Holy, 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 in verse 3 of chapter 6. Well, God is holy, perfect, without blemish, no sin and no darkness, but pure light. And because God is holy, his people must be holy. This was commanded to Israel in the Old Covenant, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, and commanded to us even in the New, to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. But what we must understand, it is not us who makes ourselves holy, but God who cleanses and purifies us for himself, that we might be holy before him. Well, how? How are we to be made holy by God? 
Well, Israel would be judged. And this would have a purifying effect. And there would be a remnant who God would call to himself and establish to be holy. But even after this judgment, we learn throughout the narratives and even Isaiah itself that Israel had a sort of recalcitrance, a sort of stubbornness and hard-heartedness toward God that kept them from fully obeying God, even after this purifying judgment. And as a result, there's a a reframing of how God will go about creating the holy people. Of course, this is not as if God's plans have failed, but to show just how impossible it is for any one of us to truly purify ourselves. Well, how will God purify his people then? It will be through the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, who will lay down his own life. He will take on God's judgment. It was the will of God, it says, to crush him. He will offer himself as a sacrifice for many. His soul is offered as a guilt offering to God. And it will be only the offspring of this servant that will inherit the kingdom of God and dwell on the holy mountain. So what happens? God intends to purify a people for himself that they may be holy. He does so through judgment and trial. But even those hard-hearted among them would find themselves in need of someone to purify. And so God raises up this servant who we know to be Jesus who would purify his people by the sprinkling of his blood. That is Christ, brothers and sisters. Christ is our purifying mediator, the means by which God's people become purified and holy so that they may be holy before God and his kingdom. It's not through our own work or not through our own changing of ourselves. It's not through the removal of our own dirt, but it is through the purifying blood of Jesus alone. Just consider Titus chapter two, what Paul says there. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the people of God's kingdom are purified by the blood of Jesus. But not only are they to be purified, but they also must be redeemed. God creates a holy people and redeems them from their fallenness. That is, he transforms them through their salvation. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. God redeems and saves his people that his own people might rejoice in their transformation before God. Three other passages in Isaiah I'll read quickly. Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And lastly, Isaiah 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So what is God doing? He is purifying a people 
making them holy by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus because they were sinners. And then he redeems them from their sin by transforming them into new creations. They are purified and redeemed by God through Christ. So God's people are saved. But now we can look to what then these saved, cleansed, purified and redeemed kingdom people do. First, they are obedient and just. The ultimate litmus test, friends, at least in terms of behavior for belonging to God's community, is whether or not one responds obediently to God's word. This isn't legalism. This is God's expectation. Even under the new covenant, there's a response of obedience to God's word. Paul would call it the obedience of faith. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Listen to the warning here held out in the beginning of the book. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good land, you eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And again, in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness but rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So obedience to God here is a willingness to submit themselves to the rule and reign of God and listen and submit to his word. What does obedience look like in Isaiah? Well, the major expression of obedience to God in Isaiah involves an upholding of righteousness and of justice. I don't think many of us have read Isaiah well if we have not held justice up as one of the major expressions of obedience and what he desires of the people whom he has purified and saved. Yes, of course, God will raise up a Davidic ruler to lead in the administration of justice. This is part of what his job is. We read about that in Isaiah 9 and 11 and 16. And Christ is that Davidic ruler who rules in perfect justice and peace. But it is also the leaders and the community members of God's kingdom who are called to embody God's perfect justice and his desire for righteousness because they too are God's people. If the image of God is restored in those who are redeemed, then the God who is just must have a people who pursues justice. What does this look like for, them, for those who would do so? Let me give you three examples in Isaiah. First, justice looks like advocating for the vulnerable. Advocating for the vulnerable. In Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 17, we see this. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evils of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Notice here that justice is very active. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. But what do those who seek justice do? They learn to do good. They are correcting oppression they seek to bring justice to the fatherless and to plead the widow's cause. That is, they are taking up the cause and the plight of the vulnerable. 
the fatherless and the widows, those who are unable to speak or defend themselves. Justice means you must advocate and stand up for those who cannot for themselves, for the vulnerable among us. That is, we can't simply proclaim God's word is true. We must go and stand on God's word as we advocate for the vulnerable. At times, this means pleading with them to trust in the vengeance that God will bring upon their enemies. That he will vindicate them just as he has vindicated Christ. And that God will come and establish his rule and reign over all of his enemies. But also it means taking up their cause for ourselves. Speaking for those who do not have a voice. Standing for those who cannot for themselves. Pleading the widow's cause and bringing justice to the fatherless. Yes, of course, this looks like championing the sanctity of life. We must speak against the evil and the oppression of things like abortion. But this goes beyond just those particular issues. In all areas of life, justice is to be advocated and performed in our hearts, in our minds, and even with our hands. Justice is to be active. So we first advocate for the vulnerable, but secondly, justice looks like setting captives free. Setting captives free. Now look in verse 6 of chapter 58 of Isaiah. 58, verse 6. Justice, of course, is the setting of captives free. There's a kind of fast which God rebukes Israel for. It's a self-centered fast, and he says this is what real fast should look like. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. The captives are to be set free. That is, we are to set aside our own self-interests for the well-being of others. We are to lift up the burden of the oppressed, to break the yoke of those who are under their own sin and slavery. We are to come alongside of them and help and provide in whatever means that may call us to. We are to set the captives free. Justice is not simply advocating for the vulnerable, but coming alongside of them and setting aside our own self-interests and our own self-preservation for the well-being of other people. But lastly, it's also providing for the poor. Look in verse 7 of the same chapter. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them? and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. See, the, the, the justice of God's kingdom looks like not only advocating for the vulnerable, to speak for those who do not have the voice, to come alongside and lift the burdens of those who are held captive by their own sin and by their own oppression, but also to then provide often at great cost to ourselves, for those who cannot provide for themselves. To bring the poor into your house, it says. To clothe those who are naked, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That is to take the pain upon yourself of caring for the poor among us. Now, I commend you, Foundation, you, you do well with benevolence. When there has been a need, and we have put that need before you, by God's grace, we have met that need and often met it abundantly. But still, we know that we could do more, even if it's personal in our own life. 
how this applies to the hand, panhandler on the side of the street or those who call the church regularly asking for support or those who you simply meet traveling somewhere that you can provide or give care to or to our whole benevolent po- posture in this city which is filled with those in deep need of help and restoration. Justice looks like advocating and setting aside our own self-interest to relieve the burdens of others and even providing for the poor and the naked and the needy. Well, those who are called to be obedient just have ultimately Christ as our model, don't we? For Christ takes up the cause of the vulnerable, like you and I, who could not save ourselves, who was defenseless before God's wrath, but Christ himself takes on God's wrath and stands in our place. He advocates for us even now in heaven as we are accused by our own enemy. He has surely set us free as captives to our sin by suffering, not taking up his own self-interest, but laying down his life for the sake of others. Indeed, we were poor, blind, and naked, but Christ himself became poor, though he was rich. He plunged himself into poverty that we may be taken out and have all the riches of God lavished upon us. That's what Christ does. And so he is our model, friends, as perfect justice, advocating for the vulnerable, setting the captives free, and providing for the poor. What else do God's people look like in God's kingdom? They are trusting and joyful. I intended to contrast the stories of Kings Ahaz and Hezekiah in chapter 7 and verse in chapters 36 and 37. I won't do that for the sake of time, but I want to commend to you to read those stories and see in each one of their lives how King Ahaz did not trust God, despite God offering a sign of trust, the virgin in chapter 7. And Hezekiah, who when Jerusalem was being threatened, did trust God and so was redeemed. That's in chapter 7 and chapters 36 through 37. But note in Isaiah 41, verse 10. We trust because God's word comes to us and compels us not to fear, but to trust. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, whose trust is in chariots because they are many and in broken horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Don't trust in chariots, but trust in God. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Over and over and over again, passages like these call God's people and God's kingdom to trust him and not in others or on themselves. Even in difficult and dark circumstances and trials, trusting in God is the means by which his people are preserved and redeemed. And again, in this, Christ is our model. That though he faced the cross, he trusted in God's wisdom that led him there. He trusted in God's perfect justice that needed to be satisfied so that we could be redeemed from our sins. Christ is our perfect model who trusts in God, though it meant ultimately death. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despises its shame. Just before that, though, the writer of Hebrews tells us, 
to set our eyes on Christ and to run the, run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he looked to God, the eyes who set before him this joy ran the race even though it meant his own death. So Christ, brothers and sisters, is our model in our perfect justice, but also in our, in our trusting. Lastly, God's people, God's kingdom people, are both international and national. Of course, God's people are international in the sense that all nations come to God. We see in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, that all nations are going to stream to, to Yahweh, the king, and will be part of his kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords and the plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. See, the promise here is that all the nations will stream to God and they will become part of his kingdom. They would know his word and his law and they would be in fellowship and unity with one another. We know war or death or famine, but they would dwell safely in the place of Zion. God's mission is not simply to create Israel to be an obedient, faithful city. His plans involve obedient nations becoming part of his kingdom too. It's not only in the beginning of Isaiah, but also in the very end. Verse 18 of chapter 66. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nation and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, Lud, and draw the bow to Tabal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So in the beginning, in the very end of the book of Isaiah, is about God bringing all nations to himself. God's kingdom people are international, but they are also national as well. That is the means through which the nations come to Yahweh, run through Zion. There in chapter 2, we see that nations come to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, where God dwells. That's in the midst of God's people in Jerusalem. So all the nations, again, find their focal point in God's dwelling place in the new Jerusalem, on the new heavens, the new earth. The highway to God's presence and glory runs through Israel. And what we don't mean is that there's necessarily some distinct people of God, the church in Israel. But what we do understand here is that though God creates a new people for his kingdom, Ephesians tells us, in place of the two, God creates a new man. He does so, here's the key, he does so on the foundation of the promises and the covenant that he made with Israel. What are the promises and the covenant he made with Israel? That which is fulfilled in the new covenant and ultimately in Christ. And so God's people from both covenants are created into one so that he, they might be the true people of God. Four application points I want to encourage you with. First, 
from all of this as we consider Christmas and God's kingdom and God's people. Know that God intervenes to redeem his people. The birth of Christ doesn't just remind us, but fixes our eyes on the fact that God has broken into history and intervened to save his people. He has not left it up to us to save ourselves, but sent Jesus to take on flesh and ultimately to take on death for our redemption. Secondly, know that God empowers his people to obey. If God's kingdom people are an obeying and joyful community, that means that he will empower his people to do so. He has purified us and saved us, but he has also given us his spirit that we might be empowered to obey the commands he has given to us, the law of Christ and the law of love. We are able to do what God now intends for his people to do because we have been equipped with the spirit to do so. Not only does he intervene for us and empower us to obey, but he also strengthens us in our faith through trials. That is how we grow in our trust. As God's people are to be a trusting people, we are strengthened in our faith to do so even when trials come. A difficult day at work or a long season at, in a relationship or a difficult and trying circumstance in our lives, God strengthens us in our trial. And lastly, in all of this, he sends Jesus as his son to be born of a virgin, to be suffer and to die, so that through this birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, God may demonstrate his faithfulness to his covenant promises. We see that we have a Jewish Messiah who takes the place of God's people so that they might be redeemed and all the promises made are fulfilled. This was always God's plan, faithful to his covenant promises. So when we look at and celebrate the Christmas season and Christ's birth, we know that God intervenes for us. It is a sign of God's intervention. We know that through Christ, he has empowered us to obey. He strengthens us in our trials. We trust him because he has faithfully provided for us and will do so again. And he demonstrates his promises, his faithfulness to his promises. What promises do we hold on to? the promise of this new heaven and new earth that comes to us on the day, the second advent of our Lord. Friends, that's the promise we now look to as we remember God's faithfulness to deliver Jesus, the Son of God, as a son of man, that he will come again and bring with it the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth, new earth where this perfect picture of prosperity and peace and unity with God, where wolf and lamb lie down together, is perfected and fulfilled in reality through Christ. Let's pray. Father, our hearts, God, must be turned to accept, to see. There's much we've said and spoken and much in your text we've read, but still there is more to understand about how your kingdom is real and is coming and has established itself among us. And it is you, God, who is working through your people, the church now, to continue to establish your kingdom on earth. And you, God, upon the second coming of your son Jesus, will consummate your kingdom. And he will be the king over all in perfect justice and righteousness. So may we long to be, God, the kind of members and citizens of your kingdom that pursue justice, that trust and obey, that look to Jesus as a demonstration of your faithfulness 
but also the means by which we are purified and made holy. Let us even now seek to do justice and righteousness in our communities and be encouraged that as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this week, we're reminded that you ultimately are faithful and that your kingdom has come and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxpg.com. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you.